Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. December 1904, 116 years ago, Japan was beating up on Russia in the Russo-Japanese War. The World's Fair was wrapping up in St. Louis after a visit from President Theodore Roosevelt. The Wright Brothers' flight, successfully launched a year earlier, had not received much coverage, so people were still wondering if air travel would ever get off the ground. Then, all of a sudden, a flying boy appears, and his name is Peter Pan, right? Very good. This morning, I tried this out on Sherry very early in the morning, and she said, Superman. So, okay, well... Yeah, it was Peter Pan, not Superman. December 1904, the classic character pops up on a London stage in a play called Peter Pan or The Boy Who Would Not Grow Up. The play turned into a novel in 1911 and later an animated film by Disney, of course, a television musical and several live action movies. The story goes something like this. Peter invites a girl named Wendy to travel via fairy dust, to Neverland, to be a mother to his gang of lost boys. Many adventures unfold, including adventures with Peter's arch enemy, Captain Hook, thank you. But in the end, Wendy decides that the best place for her is back at home with her family. Looking in on Wendy after her return, Peter knows that he will never experience the happiness of growing up with a mother and a father and a brother and a sister. The author Barry quotes, it is the one joy from which he must be forever barred, end quote. And then years later, Peter returns to see Wendy again and is shocked to discover that she has grown up. In fact, she's a mature woman with a daughter of her own. Peter is frightened by the sight of her, and she utters a cry of pain. I am old, Peter, Wendy tells him. I am ever so much more than 20. I grew up a long time ago. You promise not to, he protests. I couldn't help it, she explains. Then Peter sits down on the floor and sobs, not able to accept the fact that, well, Wendy grew up. Peter is destined to be forever the boy who would not grow up. It's interesting that Barry's original play was to be released at Christmas time in 1904. It may seem odd on the surface. It's not really a Christmas story, but what better time of year to consider the boy who did grow up, Jesus Christ, and gave us something to believe in besides Santa and fairies so that we can chant with the best of the lost boys, I believe, I do, I do. Let's say that together. I believe, I do, I do. We love the Christmas child. We love the baby in the manger. Did you notice on that last graphic? Sherry noticed it. I didn't. I thought it was just a still photo, but then the baby's arm kind of moved. Did you notice that? It's really sweet. Uh, baby Jesus, it was the, supposedly, and the little arm moved, and well, he was alive. And we love the baby Jesus. We do. In fact, in 1983... I bought my wife a Precious Moments crash starter kit. And it had Mary, Joseph, 
the baby Jesus, I think um, three sheep and something else. And that was kind of the starter kit. And then every December 1st after that, I bought her another piece to the Precious Moments crash until they ran out of pieces in 2008. So, <laughs> in fact, we have this crash all across our buffet. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. But it's, we have seven wise men, okay? So... <laughs> Go well, actually, we don't know because uh, we don't know how many wise men there were, how many magi. It does, the Bible doesn't say, but the song made us believe there were three, right? So I'm going with seven. You guys can do that. But don't we just love the baby Jesus? I mean, this Christ child in the stable, the shepherds kneeling, the angel chorus singing, the magi a couple of years later worshiping. I mean, we love this. But the truth is that Jesus is the boy who did Grow up. Let me read to you the text. Actually, it's the text that follows the famous Christmas text in Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. So this gives us a hint as to what happened after the baby was born. Okay, so read along with me. We'll put it up on the screen. I'm reading from the uh, New Living Testament. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 40. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. Let's just pause right there. You know, we kind of think, well, Jesus was being a goofball by, you know, not telling. Come on, parents. You can't go a whole day and not know where your kid is. So let's put some of the blame on Mary and Joseph, right? Verse 45. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Twelve years old, before his bar mitzvah, right? Verse 48. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this thing to us? See, she was blaming him, right? Son, why are you doing this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. Verse 49. Why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know what I mu that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Isn't that a wonderful story? Sometimes we forget that story after the story. I mean, Peter Pan and baby Jesus, they're awesome. I mean, we love these stories of these youngsters and we love how cuddly and cute and wonderful Jesus is. But for Peter Pan, it was just a life of adventure and fun without a single adult responsibility. Think of Jesus. He was born into a loving, nurturing family, uh, greeted by songs of angels, the adoration of shepherds, later the gifts of magi. What an awesome childhood. I mean, yeah, the stable, and we think how lowly and humble, but come on, consider what Jesus was experiencing. These angels and shepherds and magi, and everybody's saying you're awesome, and you're amazing, and you're fantastic. And you'd think that Jesus would want to stay a child forever. But Jesus grew up, 
Now, two years later, uh, there was a trek back to Nazareth, and everyone was looking at Mary and Joseph, and I wonder what kind of reception they had. Uh, what kind of adult responsibilities did they have to go back to? Joseph had to, he was a carpenter. He had to do his job. And, and, but you wonder about Jesus growing up. I mean, it, was, it had to be pretty hard. I mean, everybody was saying, yeah, look at Jesus. He's the favored one. You know, he's the, he's the special child. You know, he had brothers and sisters. We don't know how many brothers and sisters he had, but there were several. And, and it was probably hard, pretty hard growing up for Jesus. I mean, who wants to be like Wendy at the end of the Peter Pan story when she sits huddled by the fire, not daring to move, helpless and guilty, simply because she grew up? It's a bittersweet moment when she says, oh, Peter, don't waste your fairy dust on me. I mean, ouch. There doesn't seem to be much magic in maturity. As far as Peter Pan, let's, let's say that being stuck in childhood was a definite downside. He's a victim of what some people have called the Peter Pan syndrome. I mean, you've heard of this. Some of you have experienced it. You know, the 35-year-old son living in the basement, eating Cheetos and orange soda, smoking weed and playing video games. I mean, some kids just never want to grow up, right? That's the Peter Pan syndrome. The Peter Pan syndrome is defined as a refusal to grow up Settle down and commit. A refusal to grow up, settle down, and commit. So let's look at Jesus juxtaposed to Peter Pan and see how he did exactly those three things. He grew up, he settled down, and he committed. The first thing is this. He grew up. Luke 2.52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Age 12, before his bar mitzvah. So he goes with his parents to the festival of the Passover in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Nazareth are about 64 miles apart. So it's a three or four day journey to get there. They went in a caravan from Nazareth, all the, all the uh, devout Jews that wanted to be there in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And so there's a group of people from Nazareth and, and Jesus and, and, and Mary and uh, Joseph. And uh, by this point, uh, some brothers and sisters were there and they were along. And, and after the, the celebration, uh, they get back in their caravan and they start start heading back to Nazareth, okay? Didn't pay attention. Jesus wasn't along. He went to the temple, hang out there with the old dudes, you know, and just really, that could have been amazing to have this 12-year-old there, right? So Mary and Joseph head back, and about a day later that night, they figure, he's not here. What's going on? You know, we lost him. And they check with their family and friends, thinking that he might have been riding with one of them, but he wasn't, and so they headed back to Jerusalem. Have you ever lost someone? A kid? I mean, that's pretty scary. When, uh, uh, when we were in Denver, Colorado, Lakewood, Colorado, serving a church there, Sherry's family, some of her family came out for Thanksgiving. And so they were there, and it was mom and dad, her mom and dad, and her sister Ken, her husband Bob, and their three kids, their oldest kid being Jeff, our son Nathan's age, and Jeff was 10 years old. So they take off, they leave uh, from our house after Thanksgiving, and start the drive in a motorhome back from Denver to San Diego. Okay, so they're heading back. Well, about several hours later, they stop at a rest stop, and somehow there's some confusion, and Jeff got out of the van, didn't get back in the van, they thought he was up on the shelf, you know, with the curtain closed sleeping, and they take off, and they drive for a couple hours the other way. 
heading towards San Diego. No cell phones, folks, in those days, right? No phone number at this rest stop. And so finally through CBs, trucks, hey, truckers, you know, they're getting, you know, there was an older couple that saw Jeff crying and they took him, hey, we'll just stay with you until your parents figure us out. What if they never come back? Well, then we'll keep you. And so, but they, but they came back. And, I mean, that's a scary thing to lose a kid. That's what Mary and Joseph went to. And when they came back and confronted Jesus, why did you do this to us? Luke 2.49, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, if that was my kid, I probably would have backhanded him, right? But there was something about this Jesus growing up. Mary knew it. The angel had visited her. Joseph knew it. The angel had visited But these 12 years since then, I mean, probably uh, acne and probably goofing around and probably doing things that normal kids do. And this 12-year-old is telling them, did you not know that I must be at my father's house? For Jesus, growing up was finding his purpose, finding his calling in life. And I wonder when he really embraced that. I mean, we know at his baptism, he arrived when he was 30 years old, right? But these 18 years between 12 and 30, you wonder about all the things he experienced and all the times he had alone with his heavenly father saying, Lord, what is it you really want me to do? Finding his purpose. Peter Pan never found his purpose. His purpose was joy, right? Without any responsibility. When did you grow up? When did you grow up? When did you grow up spiritually? Now, in New York City, uh, 20 and 30-somethings buy products that remind them of their childhoods. On the corner of Bleecker and West 11th, they stand patiently in line outside the Magnolia Bakery for their fix of yellow cupcakes with chocolate icing and sprinkles. These are 20 and 30-somethings, right? In Dylan's Candy Bar, 20-somethings loiter around Pez dispensers and a giant lollipop tree. Now, two U.S. advertisers, Becky Edenkamp and Jeff, Jeff Odiorni, have coined the term Peter Pandemonium to describe this trend. People in their 20s and 30s are clamoring for comfort in purchases and products and sensory experiences that remind them of a happier, more innocent time, childhood. Peter Pandemonium. Two of the most popular TV shows of the 80s and 90s were Seinfeld and Friends. I mean, these, both of the casts of these shows were permanent adolescents, right? They never had a purpose or a goal. Self-absorption was their purpose, right? Locked in a high school mindset of eating dry cereal, watching vast quantities of TV, and hoping for some ecstatic romantic experience. I mean, that's what they experienced. And as a nation, we ate it up because we thought, well, what would be great to be so free and from responsibility and all. Now, no one ever figured out what Kramer did for a living, so we can't tell you that. But uh, Now, even sadder than all that is Christians who live in a spiritual neverland. Peter Pan Christians, they experience the life of Christ, the promise of salvation. It's what uh, Debbie and Terry talked about this morning, and they said, yes, okay, I want that. It sounds awesome. Give me that. And, and, and they raised their hand. They punched their ticket. They got the barcode and said, okay, I'm in. But, but they never progress from that. Peter Pan Christians. I had a friend in college. His name was Steve. And he made a profession of Christ, and, uh, but that's as far as it ever went. I mean, it never had any impact on his lifestyle. It never had any impact on his personal life, on the way he saw people or loved people or didn't love people. 
Peter pandemonium, a, a failure to grow up. But Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Uh, right after the service today, uh, we're going out to our beautiful uh, prayer garden out here in memory of Dee Coleman. And uh, Dick and his family are here, and we're going to have a wonderful little dedication service. And one of the things that Dick told me about his wife, Dee, was that when she grew up, uh, grew up as in a Christian home and all of that, but when she was an adult, a young adult, she decided that she wanted to really make a commitment that the world could see. And so she was baptized at Willow Creek Church in Barrington, Illinois. And it's, it's like saying, okay, see, that's one of the things amazing about baptism, why I love baptism. It's saying, I'm all in. I'm all in. This is me. Okay? I'm grown up and I'm saying, yes, I want Jesus and I want to live for him and serve him. And that's what I love about Christians who are fully devoted followers of Christ. They love what Jesus loves, whether it's people or enemies. They hate what Jesus hates, sin and selfishness and racism. Jesus grew up and discovered his purpose to be the savior and redeemer of all mankind. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus knew his purpose. From the time he was 12 years old, he knew his purpose and his lifelong mission. I wonder if you know your purpose. I mean, years ago, how many of you remember The Purpose Driven Life by uh, Rick Warren? Okay, it was pretty widespread over Christianity back in the early 2000s. Uh, we did that a whole series back in 2002 when we first moved into our new building at Hope. But if you recall, what his premise is, is that there's really five things that every Christ follower has a purpose to do and to be. To worship, to serve, to grow, to grow up, right? To fellowship, and to reach the lost. And how many Christians are in a spiritual neverland where they've never experienced those amazing things, that purpose that God has called you to, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, to bear the good news of Christ and to share that with the world, with people that you know and love. What a joyful thing it is to know your purpose in life. I wonder if you have grown up in your faith some that I know and some that you may know are still in that kind of Peter Pan syndrome. They avoid growing up spiritually. But then something else happens in the text that we read earlier, that Jesus not only grew up, he settled down. But not with a wife and kids, despite what you read in the Da Vinci Code, right? Or the family of Jesus did not begin with a marriage to Mary Magdalene. But instead, it started by the calling of 12 disciples, and then 612 followers. And then thousands of followers. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. When Jesus was pressed to describe his family, this is what he said. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Some of you experience this in the context of the church of Jesus Christ, the local church. Some of us have experienced that the connections we have in the body of Christ are even more, more passionate sometimes and more important than even our own blood relations. It's an incredible thing. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it. To hear the word of God and obey it. That's the group that Jesus settled down with. Started with 12 
and then th- thousands, and when he left, when he left the earth, by the end of the first century, there was over 200,000 Christ followers. Today on the planet, estimations, two billion people are Christ followers across the globe. We are part of his family, and we are, cherished, we are charged to carry forward his family values to hear the word of God and obey it. That's his family values, to hear the word of God and obey it. We know what Jesus said. I mean, we know in, 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 in Christ's commandment when he said, I redefine all commandments and all of the stuff that you read and heard in the Old Testament, that's all good, but let me redefine that and tell you what's more important than anything else. This is Christ's commandment, and that is to love each other in the same way that God, through Christ, has loved you. That's our commandment. That's what it means to grow up. That's what it means to be a Christ follower, to love all people, including our enemies. Christianity is the only religion that says we're supposed to love our enemies. We're being salt. We're being light. Well, pastor, that sounds good, but I just really want to know what God's will is for my life. You know what? I can make that easy for you. You don't have to sit around holding your Bible, waiting for God to reveal to you his will for you. He already did that in the scriptures. He said God's will for you is three things. I'm not willing that any should perish. God's will is that every person on the planet experiences a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. That's one thing that is his will. The second thing it says in 1 Timothy, my will is to live, my will for you is to live a pure life, to live a life that is clean, a life that is moral, a life that is connected to God. And the third thing is, it's God's will for you to be spirit-filled, be filled with the spirit. That's God's will for you. If you want, you don't need to know anything else. It's not about an activity or even a profession. God's will for you is to be saved and to be sanctified and to be spirit-filled. Mother Teresa said that her purpose was every day to be filled with Jesus. I love that. Every day to be filled with Jesus. Martin Luther King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. To settle down with the family of God. Let me just say a personal word here. Um, Sherry and I live 90 miles away. We live in the southern part of Chandler, Sun Lakes. And we've experienced, um, I've served five churches in my ministry, and not counting the transition churches, uh, five churches as the, as the lead pastor. And each one of them have become our family. Now, it's more difficult to experience this settling down effect of a church family, number one, in a pandemic, <laughs> and number two, when you're a short timer, you know, like I am, right? But I want you to know that you have made Sherry and I part of your family. You have allowed us to settle down into this group. You have allowed us to be part of this family. Uh, I mean, I've been your transition pastor for 10 and a half months, and we feel as home, at, as at home here as we felt in any church that we've served. So I just want you to know how much we appreciate that. Because the family of God is to hear the word of God and obey it. And I hear that from you, every, from our FT, from the OT, from the staff, to hear the word of God and obey it. When Jesus settled down with his family, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus did one last thing, unlike the Peter Pan syndrome. He committed. He committed. 
At his baptism, he received the Holy Spirit, the blessing of God. He went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Guided by the word of God, he committed to healing the broken, redeeming the forgotten, saving the lost. His level of commitment to his purpose was seen clearly when he allowed himself to go to the cross and die for your sins and for mine. He died for your sins. His commitment of love and devotion was so great to you that Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address used this phrase that I absolutely love because it's a, it's, a, it's a Christ phrase. He said, for those who have given their last full measure, right? Jesus gave his last full measure to you and to me. When you grow up, you learn how to commit. Now, commitment is a problem for many young people today, and I, I'm not saying, I mean, I've got kids and grandkids. We've got grandkids in their 20s, and uh, they taught Sherry and I what FOMO means, F-O-M-O. It's, you know, fear of missing out. That's why young people don't commit. There may be something better in an, an hour from now, so I'm not sure I want to commit to that right now. But marriage, young people aren't getting married these days like they used to. Now, for instance, uh, take Barbie, right? So we've been introduced to Barbie once again through our worship pastor, uh, Jeanette, and uh, she's told us, and you'll hear more about that a little bit later, but uh, she grew up with Malibu Barbie, right? And in many ways, Barbie, the doll is quite grown up. I mean, she looks like it. I mean, she has 80 jobs on her resume, ranging from dentistry to paleontology. <laughs> but is she afraid of commitment? I would say, yes, she is. According to Fast Company Magazine, May of 2014, Mattel Incorp Corporation has announced that after 43 years of dating, Barbie and Ken have agreed to be just good friends. <laughs> What's the deal, Barbie? Ambition? <laughs> what, confusion? A midlife crisis? No, just the refusal to grow up. If your view of commitment is like Barbie or Peter Pan, it's time to grow up. I mean, it's, it's time, listen, I'm in. If you need to be baptized, let's baptize you. If you need to join the church, let's join. The, if you need to start a, a devotional life, you call me. You call one of our elders. We will make sure that you know how to do that. It's time to grow up. Count me in. I'm here to do and hear the word of God. That's what it means to be grown up. I want to close with this uh, wonderful story, one of my favorite Christmas stories, uh, entitled... Trouble at the end. Some of you know it. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are mentioned in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally was nine years old and in the second grade, although he should have been in the fourth grade. He was big and clumsy, slow in mind and movement. Still, he was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he, he was always a helpful boy, willing and smiling, a natural protector of the underdog. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd in the Christmas pageant that year, but he was assigned a more important role. After all, the play's director reasoned. The innkeeper didn't have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph much more forceful. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the story than Wallace Perling. The time came when Joseph approached 
Slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn, Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door, set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there, waiting. What do you want? Wally said, swinging the door open brusquely. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead and spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. There is no room for you. He looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest, yet surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Now for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. There was a long pause, you might say, a pregnant pause. (laughs) No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around his wife and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. While he stood there in the doorway watching the forlorn couple, his mouth was open, his brow creased with his concern, his eyes unmistakably filling with tears. And suddenly the Christmas pageant became different from all others. Don't go, Joseph, Wally called out. Bring Mary back. His face brightened with a big smile. He said, you can have my room. Some people in town thought the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were some others, many, many others, who considered it was the most Christmassy of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. You see, Wally went off script. It reminds me of that song, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, there's room in my heart for you. That's commitment. A boy like Wallace like Jesus, to grow up, to seek, and to save those who were lost. Grow up, settle down, and commit. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, um, this time of year, we all kind of want to be kids again. (laughs) We love the story of the cute baby in the manger, and we love what uh, it represents and how wonderful and cozy it feels, but Father, that was just the beginning of a boy who grew into a man and a man who went to the cross to be our Savior. Lord, I just wonder if there are those here today who would just recognize in their own lives that maybe they've experienced a little bit of the Peter Pan syndrome, a failure to grow up in their spiritual lives, a failure to really press into that amazing grace that you have provided us that have failed to really embrace all that Christianity implies in loving and serving you. And Father, if that's the case, my prayer today would be that they would simply say, yes, I'm in. I'm all in. I give everything to you, Lord Jesus. Everything, my thinking, my heart, my wallet, my plans, my purpose, I give it all to you. So, Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful story of Jesus who started out as this wonderful little boy but grew up to be our Savior and our Lord. And we thank you, Father, for the magic of this story and the wonder of what it means for us. Lord, may each and every one of us grow up, settle down, and commit to our Savior. 
I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.